Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. This podcast is a recording of a live Touch Satellite Symposium held in March 2023 at the ADPD 2023 International Conference on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's Diseases and Related Neurological Disorders in Gothenburg, Sweden. In this symposium, Professor Jeffrey Cummings is joined by leading experts Professors Liana Apostolova, Oscar Hansen and Charlotte Tunison. Together they discuss the importance of a timely and accurate diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and how current diagnostic challenges and barriers may be addressed through the use of blood-based biomarkers. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Eli Lilly and Company. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. The early and accurate detection of the symptoms and pathology of Alzheimer's disease by clinicians is fundamental for the screening, diagnosis and subsequent management of patients with Alzheimer's disease. Unfortunately, detecting early-stage Alzheimer's disease in clinical practice can be challenging. In primary care, more than 50% of patients with cognitive impairment are not recognised or correctly diagnosed, resulting in suboptimal treatment and care, delayed or incorrect therapies and inaccurate information about their disease and prognosis. Alzheimer's disease is clinically heterogeneous in both presentation and progression and has a complex underlying pathophysiology. Historically, Alzheimer's disease was only diagnosed with complete certainty after death. However, Clinical symptoms are thought to develop over many years, progressively impacting cognition, function and behaviour. Therefore, biomarkers that accurately reflect the pathology of Alzheimer's disease during life are increasingly relevant for its early detection, particularly now that disease-modifying therapies are becoming available. The classic pathophysiological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease can currently be detected using cerebrospinal fluid analysis or positron emission tomography. However, these are often invasive and associated with a high cost, limiting their use in the clinical setting. There is therefore an important medical need to identify cost-effective biomarkers that can be more easily obtained in a less invasive manner and that can be serially measured. Blood-based biomarkers may fulfil this need. Emerging technologies with superior sensitivity and specificity for measuring amyloid beta and phosphorylated tau in the blood have reported high concordances with severity. Furthermore, these blood-based biomarkers are able to discriminate from other neurodegenerative diseases. Blood-based biomarkers have the potential for widespread use as powerful instruments for the diagnosis and prognosis, as well as monitoring the disease progression and treatment effects over time. To realise research goals, a blood-based biomarker roadmap is needed to accelerate their route towards clinical implementation. Hello everyone, welcome. 
So we're going to talk about blood-based biomarkers supporting the diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's. I'm Jeff Cummings from the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. So here's our program, uh, Moving Towards a Biological Diagnosis of Alzheimer's Disease. The time is now. Blood-based biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease advantages and limitations. Integrating blood-based biomarkers in Alzheimer's disease, how and when. Uh, and then we'll have our panel discussion uh, and a meeting summary and close. Our learning objectives for today recognize the importance of a timely and accurate biological diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. We know how important that is, and we can't use the new therapies without it. Assess the clinical data for diagnostic, uh, for the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and use blood biomarkers and understand their advantages and limitations. Evaluate how blood-based biomarkers can be integrated into the diagno diagnostic workflow of our patients. These are new. Uh, there are new opportunities, but there are also new requirements associated with them. So we've got a really great faculty today. I am just so pleased uh, with uh, the, the individuals who are able to, to uh, provide these lectures today. So we'll, we'll start with uh, Professor Liana Apostolova from Indiana University, um, School of Medicine there in Indianapolis. Then we'll go to Professor Oscar Hansen from Lund University, Lund, Sweden, we're close to home. Uh, and Professor Charlotte Tunison from Amsterdam UMC and the Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Welcome and good morning to you all, and thanks, Jeff, for the introductions. Um, I'm tasked to take you through um, the development of Alzheimer's disease diagnosis from a clinical entity to a clinical pathological entity. So here is the epidemiology of Alzheimer's disease, taken freshly from Alzheimer's disease fact and figures, which was just published. There are over 55 million individuals worldwide diagnosed with dementia, and this number is expected to reach 139 million by 2050 if we don't have therapies. One in three individuals over the age of 65 die with Alzheimer's disease or another form of neurodegenerative dementia, and diagnosis is typically delayed by two, three, or more years. Alzheimer's disease is the most common neurodegenerative disorder worldwide, accounting for 60 to 80% of all dementia cases. However, it could be also misdiagnosed and labeled as other dementia or other neurodegenerative disorders may be misdiagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, and we see that in approximately 25% of the cases. Globally, an estimated 75% of people with dementia are not yet diagnosed. This is the evolution of Alzheimer's disease diagnosis. The first criteria came in 1984. This was the clinical diagnosis of the dementia syndrome. And we as clinicians assigned probability of Alzheimer's disease based on the prevalence of other uh, comorbidities, for instance, vascular, the likelihood of the clinical syndrome being Alzheimer's. So there were unlikely Alzheimer's disease, probable and possible Alzheimer's disease, and after postmortem diagnosis, definite Alzheimer's disease. We were aided by neuropsychological testing, and all, all to, everything altogether was pointing to greater uncertainty about the diagnosis as postmortem. Lo and behold, 30%, 25 to 30% of cases were not showing Alzheimer's pathology. 
Here come biomarkers in 2011. The criteria were revised. These are the NIAAA criteria. Three stages of disease were recognized, two symptomatic stages, mild cognitive impairment, and a preclinical stage, which I'll define in a moment. Uh, new AD major symptoms were identified, including the possibility that Alzheimer's disease does not have to present with a memory deficit. There is a small number of cases that are atypical, presenting with domains, impairment in other domains, such as visual, spatial, language, and so on. And now, here come biomarkers, CSF assessments first, followed by PET imaging to assess A-beta, tau levels, and all along we've had MRI imaging to show us neurodegenerative changes in the brain. In 2018, the ATN research framework was proposed, uh, again, recognizing various levels of these pathologies in the brain, which is exceedingly helpful as we decide the likelihood of Alzheimer's disease. Um, detecting preclinical AD, how did that happen? Only because of biomarkers. Um, what we knew is that the clinical presentation of Alzheimer's disease uh, and the incidence happens uh, exponentially with great frequency after the age of 65. However, once we had biomarkers, we saw that the neuropathological changes actually start 10 to 20 years earlier. And this is a per perfect window of preclinical diagnosis and hopefully arresting the disease or slowing the disease uh, in that stage is gonna manifest with great outcomes in the future. In terms of the ATN classification, there, this is the famous um, uh, Jack biomarker curves, and I'm gonna plot them uh, by how they appear in terms of pathology as we test our patients destined to develop Alzheimer's dementia. Um, first are abnormalities in CSF and plasma, shortly followed by abnormalities on amyloid PET. Um, followed by changes of phosphotau in both CSF and plasma and tau PET. Um, and only after that, we start seeing neurodegenerative changes on MRI or FDG PET. All of these happen in the preclinical AD stage, as you can see right here. And after all that pathology has evolved in the brain, uh, cognitive changes start appearing in MCI and dementia entry. So there are multiple ways to assess the A, uh, T, and biomarkers, where A stands for amyloid, uh, T stands for tau, N stands for neurodegeneration. We'll go over these in greater detail in a little bit. What is important to know is that the ATN classification has multiple, of course, combination of these biomarkers, with the three being negative is the vast majority of cognitively normal population, including some also, of course, including some of the cognitively impaired population that is not due to AD. Um, when uh, amyloid is negative, but T and N, tau and neurodegeneration are positive, we're thinking about non-Alzheimer's dementias. However, when amyloid is positive with various combinations of tau pathology and neurodegeneration, um, these patients are on the Alzheimer's disease spectrum. Um, the prevalence of healthy controls, cognitively impaired but stable MCI participants or progressors with MCI and Alzheimer's disease dementia um, in these bins, if you want, of the ATN uh, combinations is as follows. One can clearly see that there are a lot more cognitively normal individuals with negative biomarkers or with just amyloid positivity. 
while the symptomatic cases and especially MCI progressors um, are really uh, very common in the A plus T plus uh, with uh, neurodegeneration or not. To define uh, some of the uh, advantages and limitations of our biomarkers, amyloid and tau PET are very sensitive and specific, both, and uh, they are uh, more less invasive than, uh, say, CSF measures. However, the downside is that PET scanning is a technology that's not readily available, and it's very expensive, and there is exposure to radiation as well. For In terms of CSF, well, it's a lumbar puncture, and especially outside of Europe mostly, uh, individuals are not really very keen undergoing these procedures. It's an invasive procedure. However, it performs pretty well as well. It's highly discriminative of AD, relatively inexpensive, and allows also to obtain some of the fluid to test other biomarkers, which we're still lagging behind with. Lastly, structural MRI has been around forever, and it's a really great biomarker to assess uh, atrophy, but atrophy is so nonspecific, and uh, it's not deterministic for presence uh, of Alzheimer's disease or the core pathologies. Here are the three FDA-approved uh, amyloid uh, imaging agents in the United States, fluorbetapyr, uh, flutamatamol, and fluorbetaben. In the left panels are uh, amyloid negative individuals, and in the right panels, amyloid positive individuals. Doesn't matter whether the grayscale is used or the color scale is used, one can clearly see how there is a lot more co uh, cortical uptake of the tracers in the panel on the right. And one can see the great sensitivity and specificity to, to amyloid pathology in the brain. Tau tells us a little bit more about uh, uh, disease staging, if you will, because it has a stage progression through the brain. In controls, we oftentimes could see uh, tau deposition in the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex as the disease progresses to MCI. Um, there is spread of tau to the cortex, first to the lateral inferior temporal lobes, and later on as uh, disease progresses to parietal and frontal lobes. Um, the pattern is very different from that seen in other dementias, which on occasion can be also positive on tau imaging. The fluortausipir tracer is approved by the FDA in the United States and has excellent sensitivity and specificity to tau pathology. Now, having amyloid and tau in the brain is not a good predicament for cognitively normal individuals. Cognitively normal individuals who are A plus, T plus, or even only A plus, are at greater risk to progress to MCI, as shown on the left, and all-cause dementia, as shown on the right, in these survival curves. So how do we approach diagnosis in clinic? Um, we hope uh, it starts in the primary care physician offices where um, assessments could take place to screen individuals because early diagnosis is important now that we have disease-modifying therapies. So patient and family history can be obtained followed by blood testing, some routine blood tests, a neurological physical examination, cognitive and functional assessments, and structural imaging. This can be done in the PCP office or in the neurology offices. After that, access to biomarkers is now uh, where we are. We could absolutely use CSF, but also blood, 
and also imaging biomarkers with uh, the appropriate coverage uh, when that is available. And lastly, this gives us the opportunity, this molecular diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease gives us the opportunity to uh, provide our patients with disease-modifying treatments, lecanemab and aducanumab have been approved, more are coming down the pipeline, and uh, it is the future. Now, there are barriers to diagnosing MCI and dementia uh, that are perceived by healthcare professionals and patients, and here are the ones that are listed as clinician factors, and you know them very well. Lack of definitive biomarker tests, waiting too long to, uh, for a patient to be seen by the specialists, limited treatment options, hopefully not the case soon, uh, clinical think clinicians thinking that Memory loss is a common symptom of aging. Um, it could be, but in many cases, it's more than that. Um, clinician concern about the impact of diagnosis on the family and the patient and lack of standard diagnostic pathway. In terms of patients, there are the patient factors. Physician, patients and caregivers can too think that memory loss is a common part of aging. However, of course, a lot of the malignant memory loss we see, we know it's not due to aging alone. Uh, patients not disclosing symptoms to their physicians is pretty common, and unwillingness of patients to undergo further testing. So to summarize this first part, it was the talk staging the, the, the topic for my colleagues that are going to tell you about the fluid biomarker scene. Um, it's extremely important, it's imperative to diagnose Alzheimer's disease early as we have the opportunity to advance treatment and administer, hopefully, uh, very soon with uh, Medicare approval. Based on the nature of the pathologic process, biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease are classified as amyloid tau and neurodegeneration, and that can be very helpful in staging patients and helping get on the right therapies. And... Um, both PET and CSF are highly accurate measures. However, there are challenges. There is invasiveness, there is radioactivity, there is uh, the uh, limitation of, of PET scanners, uh, distribution and availability, and radiation as well. So the future is in blood biomarkers. So Liana, we'll take some audience from the questions from the audience. We have one from Alessandro Padovani, so thank you, Alessandro. Biomarkers should be a way to profile a patient and identify uh, different potential biological mechanisms eventually to be able to target combination therapies. Yes. So what do you think about that? Is this a way to combination therapy? I think so. However, we do need to do better than amyloid and tau biomarkers only. We have to develop certain measures, biomarker-sensitive measures for inflammation, for TDP43, for alpha-synuclein, and all the other co-pathologists. Very often, there is just not two proteins in the brain. There are many more proteins seen on autopsy, and all of that should lead to personalized care to treat the disease and the proteinopathies that an individual possesses for an effective treatment. So let me just follow up on that. What What's the major missing elements of ATN, right? I mean, that's only three elements of an extremely yeah. complicated process. Yes. So what, what's missing or what's next? How do, you, how do you see the next step in ATN? 
Well, certainly we can see vascular pathology as well on MRI scans, so ATNV, but also inflammation is really important, uh, potentially signifying individuals who have a more aggressive form of the disease or, or will be more responsive to different combination therapies, adding anti-inflammatory uh, therapies in the future. TDP43 is a common protein present in the brain of individuals of older age specifically and Alpha-synuclein is extremely common as well in the limbic system of patients with Alzheimer's. So all of these we need better biomarkers for. And they would guide combination therapy as your... As your I plan. would think so. In the future, we would need amyloid treatment, tau treatment, and then depending on the personalized proteinopathy profile of a patient, a more, um, more personalized approach to how we treat Alzheimer's disease, yes. So I have two related questions. Yes. Are we ready to replace imaging with blood tests? Ooh. <clears throat> I love that question. I'm an imager. <laughs> <laughs> but I might say that uh, potentially that is the future. So for now, blood tests can pre-screen individuals. And if they enter clinical trials or start amyloid-lowering therapies, we do need to visualize the pathology in the brain. So a scan will be useful and we, or CSF testing will be useful. However, once we start these therapies to monitor the effectiveness, I think we would rely one day on blood biomarkers, specifically the phosphotau species. And who knows? Uh, the blood biomarker field has been developing so rapidly, has such huge promise that I do believe we might not need the PET technology forever, but again, visualizing is important at this stage. And the related question is, and this is very specific, so you might not know it, but you could speculate maybe a little bit. How soon will the U.S. Oops, how soon will the U.S. FDA accept a plasma biomarker as diagnostic of Alzheimer's disease on par with CSF and PET? And if so, which one? So how do you how, do you, how close are we to a sort of regulatory <laughs> examination of this question? That is great question. I hope soon, and I mean we can't wait to have the ability to use blood diagnostics in clinic. My guess would be phosphotau, phosphotau two one seven or one eight one. But, of course, the experts are sitting right there, so <laughs> they'll tell us. <laughs> so we'll come back to the panel a little bit later. But I am looking forward to more input on this. So now you have a chance to think ahead of time about it. Okay, Leanna, what about neurofilament light? Neurofilament light is oh. excluded here. So what yeah. about neurofilament light? Yeah, so it's just like MRI. It's nonspecific. It's elevated in multiple conditions, especially those that also affect peripheral nervous system, ALS, has... Um, demonstrated um, great utility for NFL for measuring disease progression and response to treatment even. So for Alzheimer's, NFL coming from the brain, it's not just as powerful, but it's piece of the puzzle definitely can be added to the biomarker menu, if you will, of following individuals therapeutically as well. So it's kind of our only N right now, or are there other Ns for ATN? Uh, you know, people think, I think, of, of, of neurofilament light as an N marker. Mm -hmm. Are there alternative N markers? You know, where are we with N? So from imaging perspective, it's MRI and FDG PET. And from 
biomarker perspective, it's neurofilament, neurogranin uh, as well, and other synaptic markers, of course, because synapses do degenerate. That's what they're good for. But NFL is the most prominent one for now. And to what extent do you see these biomarkers expanding the, uh, to, into the diagnosis of preclinical and prodromal Alzheimer's disease? So preclinical and prodromal. So for prodromal, it's extremely important. We want to treat individuals as soon as they show symptoms for best outcomes. So in prodromal, uh, we must um, define the pathology uh, using these biomarkers and place patients on uh, disease-modifying treatments. In preclinical, we're not there yet. We don't yet have a, a therapeutic regimen to offer. Uh, however, that might change in the next several years as trials are completed and results come out. So for preclinical, it's still just for research purposes, but for prodromal, I would use them in clinic. Do you think preclinical is coming? You know, I've got a, let's say I've got a family history um, and I'm entering an age range where I'm, where I'm vulnerable. Is that a place where we're gonna see preclinical use? We don't have much for preclinical use just yet. No medication has really proven to be eff efficacious in that stage. Uh -huh. So I would not advocate to test biomarkers in somebody who has, doesn't, hasn't developed symptoms just yet. Okay. Very limited advice to offer. Other than the common, live a healthy life, exercise, healthy diet, which we should do anyhow. So here's a kind of differential diagnostic question. Mm -hmm. How well do the plasma biomarkers correlate with disease-specific FDG PET in AD, Lewy body, and frontotemporal? Disease-specific FDG PET changes, I assume. So the, the biomarkers basically in dementia with Lewy body and Alzheimer's, we do anticipate the vast majority of patients with dementia with Lewy body to have some amount of amyloid. So it is FDG PET that for now can provide some additional guidance on the diagnostic uh, assessment there. Um, frontotemporal dementia, very different profile on FDG PET in general. So uh, it is very useful to image individuals with FDG PET when that disease is suspected. Okay. Does that answer? What's the biggest no-go for lumbar punctures? Is it the invasiveness, the ability to assess the samples in the right labs, or patient resistance? It's the invasiveness which causes patient resistance. Absolutely. You think the laboratory assays are well worked out? Yes. Not, not a problem. I, I absolutely. CSF has been around for decades. We have a lot of questions here. It's really great. Uh, how will Alzheimer's, how will A-beta treatments work if they rely on A+, plus, T+, plus, N+, plus diagnosis where trials are required earlier in treatment? Say that so again. A+, plus, T+, plus, N+, plus, but you want to give early treatment. So it seems like you have the full repertoire wouldn't that be later? I think that's the question. Wouldn't that be later in the disease if the patient already has the full ATN repertoire? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, one must agree that amyloid comes first, tau next, and 
when neurodegeneration settles, the disease has progressed quite a bit, but um, treatment as early as possible is important. So if individuals come to you and they are ATN positive on all three markers, that does not preclude therapy. They should be treated if they meet criteria for MCI and mild dementia uh, with disease-modifying drugs. So you could, could you guide your decision on timing with ATN? Decision on timing? For, uh, to, to deliver an anti-amyloid an anti monoclonal. So for anti-amyloid myoclonal uh, um, therapy, there is the requirement to only assess amyloid positivity, which is the target, obviously, since amyloid removal is the drug action. Uh, it's There is no requirement to test for tau positivity. Right. Although if one does CSF, you get that together with uh, the amyloid values. But um, there is no need to um, um, scan an individual with amyloid and tau PET before starting therapy. Once amyloid positivity is established, you have the drug target. So it would be appropriate to start medication in individuals who are cognitively impaired. So here's an interesting question. That's sort of two parts. How will amyloid depletion uh, with A-beta therapies affect the ATN assessment? <laughs> and could that guide combination therapy? So, um, obviously, we want to reduce amyloid in the brain. So, amyloid PET will become negative over time. And multiple agents have shown to do that. Um, what that could guide is perhaps in the future, once we know how to handle uh, disease-modifying therapy longitudinally, it might be a stopping point for these drugs. Once the target is no longer present in the brain, do we continue treating or do we um, take a break and reassess based on either imaging to see new accumulation of amyloid in the brain or blood biomarkers? Uh, that still has not been established, how to deal with that. Um, however, definitely, uh, even though there is uh, evidence from the lecanemab trial that there is a downstream effect on tau, um, tau pathology might need to be targeted separately and, uh, uh, and addressed uh, so that we have the best outcomes. I think we're all hoping for more potent drugs. And even though we see an effect with lecanemab, the magnitude of that effect leaves something to be desired. So I do believe combination therapies are needed. Here's a kind of equity question. In countries where CSF and amyloid PET are not available, huh. is FDG PET still helpful? Not in a way that amyloid and tau biomarkers are. FDG PET is nonspecific. Uh, the abnormalities are due to neurodegeneration, and there are a whole host of diseases that uh, can present and behave and uh, be on, on FDG PET uh, AD-like, so I would not uh, just rely on that. We need to know if the target is present in the brain before we treat. These treatments are very expensive, and there are also some risks associated with them, so it's important to assess amyloid biomarkers. Hmm. We're coming to the end of our time. I'm trying to get the best possible question here. Um, Good questions. <laughs> Uh, what is about collaboration 
what are some of the ways that you see the industry, presumably the biomarker industry, and scientific societies collaborate to drive forward the biomarkers to be available as soon as possible? Oh, it would be phenomenal. So the trials that have been conducted all have, um, uh, especially in the last seven, eight, ten years, all have amyloid imaging and tau imaging. Many of them have too. So there has been blood collection, there has been DNA collection from these individuals. It's really, really important in a pre-competitive space to test these samples and develop additional biomarkers for diagnostics and understand more the genetic heterogeneity of Alzheimer's disease and uncover the missing links and missing um, uh, signals there because we would not be done with just amyloid and tau therapies. There is more that needs to be added, I believe combination therapy would be the future. Okay, let's try one more. Are there any imaging biomarkers for tauopathies other than AD? And maybe uh, I'd expand that to say fluid biomarkers also. No, uh, not to my knowledge. There are none. Yeah, okay. Oscar, let's go on to the next lecture. Okay. We've, we've grilled Leanna. Yes, that was here. a tough one. But you made it so <laughs> Good well. question. You made it so well. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very happy to see so many people here, so many researchers interested in, in biomarkers. Um, it's, it's, it's really thrilling, I think. And uh, uh, so many of us have been working with biomarkers now for 20 years, developing, validating them. And then it's so rewarding to see that these markers will now finally make a big difference, not only a few countries, but actually worldwide. And I think together with, with the development of these effective disease-modified therapies like lecanemab, I think we are now in a new era of Alzheimer's disease research. But not only research, actually a new era of how we will diagnose and treat Alzheimer's disease in clinical practice. We've been working so hard and finally are there. But now we need to collaborate even more to move this faster and to get even more so we get these, these treatments and, and diagnosis out to the patients that need them so much. So, as you know, there are a lot of different blood-based biomarkers that we can, can use um, already today. Um, and um, we have, for example, markers in blood, a beta 4240 uh, that you can measure that are reflecting the change in a beta metabolism in the brain. And this, of course, associated with also the emergence of amyloid plaque pathology. We have different types of phospho-tau uh, that we can measure. Some of these, like phospho-tau-231, seem to be more associated also with black plaque pathology. Others, like phospho-tau-205, seem to be more associated with neurofibular tangle pathology or other types of tau aggregates. Others, like phospho-tau-217, seem actually to be associated with both of these two key pathologies. We also, of course, as you heard before, have markers of neurodegeneration, like the filament light that is more reflecting axonal degeneration, and markers like GFAP that are reflecting reactive astrocytes. And luckily, many of these markers are then diffusing out into the, over the blood-brain barrier into the bloodstream where we can then measure them in, in the blood with different types of assays. So here's just a list of different assays that can be used, like the standard sandwich ELISAs and, and SIMOA methods or mass spectrometry-based methods and so on. Um, and these different methods have different types of sensitivity, but also reliability to measure these different biomarkers. So we and others have then set out to 
compare these different methods and to see how do they perform, which are the ones that we should bring forward into clinical practice and also preferably used in clinical trials and in, in research in general. So this was one study done by Shirina Litsen and many others in my lab and a lot of other groups where we used the Biofinder study as well as the ADNIN study to compare different assays measuring a beta for 240. Um, and you see here the AUCs plotted uh, of detecting amyloid plaque pathology in the brain uh, as either determined with CSFA beta 240 or amyloid PET actually in this paper. And you see that there's a quite surprisingly big difference in, in the performance of these assays. Some only have an AUC of around 0.6, others go up to like 0.84, where the IPMS methods, so the mass spectrometry-based methods, seems to perform the best and are likely the ones that we should maybe use if we're going to use this biomarker in, in clinical practice. But here you also see that the immune assay, the Alexis Roche assay, worked quite well with an AUC of 0.8. But it's important to remember this when I think also reading papers, it's not only these different assays perform quite differently and give different type of information. But in summary here, it seems like the mass spectrometry assays perform well to detect this biomarker. But I will come back to, to this again, because there is also maybe some problem with um, uh, clinical robustness with this type of marker. So as you already heard uh, from the previous talk, many of us are of course very excited with the plasma phosphatau assays. Um, and again, there are a lot of different assays that have been developed recently. Um, and again, we did a head-to-head -head study. Again, it was Shrina Janlitze in my lab that headed that study. So it, it was study participants from, from with mild cognitive impairment, uh, 150 about, and 71 of those had amyloid pathology in the brain. But importantly, 45 actually developed AD dementia within the follow-up period of four to six years. So we compared this assay to see if I could detect amyloid pathology and if I could predict what was going to happen to the patient in the future. So we compared them 10 different assays, and what you can see is that the Fossil Tau 217 assays perform the best with AUCs quite well above 0.9, and again, the mass spectrometry assay here performed slightly better. And that is slightly different because the others just measure the total level of phosphorylated tau, but the mass spectrometry assay here is a ratio between phosphor tau and the total level of tau. So it's slightly different, giving a slightly higher performance with an AUC of 0.95. Uh, and we should remember that the standard truth is not perfect. So I don't know how much better than this it can actually get. You also see that there are quite some assays, like for example, ADX assay for one at one, that also performs quite well, but then there are other assays that perform maybe not so well. And here we see how these assays can also be used to predict development of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease. And again, I think these numbers are very impressive. No? It's well above 0.9. This is what we see with CSF. It's, it's just as good as CSF, I would say, in this context. So the conclusion here is that I would say that all the 217 assays here work very well. The ones developed by, by Lillian and Janssen, as well as the mass spec method. But it seems like the mass spectrometry method might have a slight advantage compared to the other assays. At the same time, of course, it's a little bit more laborious and, and a more complex method to do. And maybe you need them to use central laboratories uh, uh, to, to, use, yeah, to analyze this instead of, of decentralized in different hospitals. 
Um, so how do biomarkers work uh, in the differential diagnosis of dementia? This is one study from, from our group, um, headed by, by Sebastian Palmqvist, um, where we saw that FOSTA217 was increased here with up to 700% in people with AD dementia. So, and we see that in the other, in the other diagnosis, um, diagnostic groups, um, there are no increases with phosphatau 2 and 7. So it's a very specific marker. It only increases in people with AD dementia. And we've also done many studies, and others as well, uh, where plasma samples are collected in life and compared to neuropathology. And again, we see that phosphatau 2 and 7 and also other phosphatau are only increasing in the presence of amyloid pathology together with tau pathology. So we don't see real increases in people with non-AD tau pathies like CBD, uh, PSP, and so on. So it's very specific. And this, of course, again, translates into to very impressive AUCs now when differentiating AD dementia to other neurodegenerative diseases. Here we have AUCs about 0.96, which were actually non-inferior to CSF phosphatau 217 and even tau PET, but even better than CSF phosphatau 181, which is at least the, the tau marker that most of phosphatau marker most of us are using in clinical practice today. But it's not only about this type of studies where we measure um, samples at once. To use them in a good way in clinical practice, they need to be robust. So if we collect a blood sample from a patient and analyze it at one time, and then two months later, we take a new blood sample and analyze it again, of course, we want a very similar answer. We don't want that it's like Alzheimer's disease in the first and then not Alzheimer's last time. So we did here such a study uh, and compared the different markers when we did this test, retest variability to see what is the variation in the levels with different markers. And as you see, IBT 4240 actually performed best here, with a very low variation of only 4%. And the reason here is actually that this ratio, so both IBT 4240 fluctuate, but they fluctuate together. So the ratio is very stable. We have higher variation for phosphatau 2 and 7, GFAP, and, and neurofilament, around 20% variation of these markers. But this is not the only answer we, we need now, because um, we, now we know the variation of the marker, but of course, it, it's very important to know what is the difference between those with Alzheimer's disease and those without. Because for IBTA4240, as you know, it's only reduced by about 10% in people with Alzheimer's disease compared to those that do not have it. So when introducing this type of variability, and you see here the, the change in AUC, you see that actually IBTA4240 drops quite a bit, even though the variability is very low. But that's because the difference between controls and AD is very low. You see phosphatau 2 and 7, that still varies a bit, like 20%. It's not affected so much, and that's because it increased with 3 to 700% in, in Alzheimer's disease. So 20% difference doesn't really make such a big difference. But also you can get more stable results when combining biomarkers. So if you use several biomarkers in a test, you can actually get maybe even more stable results over time. So the conclusion here is that phosphatau 2 and 7, and it seems to be quite robust to the type of variation that you would expect in when doing repeated assessments in clinical practice. And now I think the most important studies are performed around the world, that is to do prospective studies in real world populations, so in memory clinics, but also in primary care clinics, where samples are collected on a daily basis, they're analyzed maybe on a weekly basis, and we have like a real standard truth like CSF and PET, and we do this over long time periods, like one, two years, and see how these markers actually perform in these type of settings. 
And the data we have seen this far looks very promising uh, for, for example, Phosphatau, I would say. But of course, we need to be careful. We need to know are the other factors affecting these biomarker levels. So if it's not only Alzheimer's disease pathology, but are there also other things. And for example, the Mayo Clinic had a very nice paper on this showing phosphate association with chronic kidney disease and also changes in BMI with phosphatau and also neurofilament and GFP. We have seen the same in the BioFinder studies. So what we see is that there is a slight increase in, in especially neurofilament and GFP, but some degree also phosphatau in people with chronic kidney disease. People that have a large BMI have the other direction, maybe because they have a larger blood, blood volume, everything gets a little bit more diluted, so the levels got slightly more uh, lower then. At the same time, if you look at more common populations, we have at least seen in our studies that this does not really affect the performance, especially of hospital, very much. Still, we need to be careful, because it could be patients with quite severe kidney disease or, 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 or obesity, for example, where this will actually make a big difference. But this is not like specific for these biomarkers. We have the same with troponin T and troponin I that we use now for ischemic heart disease. And we know that for chronic kidney disease increases this, but still they are fantastic markers. It's just that you need to be more careful. You need to know that if a patient has chronic kidney disease, you should be slightly more careful when interpreting the results. So I'm still very hopeful that this will not be a major problem. We also need to study other things that have not yet been studied that well. So if it's cardiovascular disease affect these biomarkers, sex or race, ethnicity. Here I've seen different results. I think we need large scale trials on this to really know how big these factors are for these markers. So that is the conclusion of that. We still need some research in, in this area. But I still think that it looks very hopeful for, for many of these markers. Uh, and I think as long as we are aware of this, it will work very well. So this is some type of, of summary slide, a little bit. Um, so to detect preclinical Alzheimer's disease, uh, we can use phosphatau either 217 or maybe 231 to, to detect together, probably with A-beta 4240 if you use the most spectrometry-based method. And this, of course, mainly then for preclinical AD trials. In people with MCI, I think phosphatau 217 works extremely well. But if you also want to have a prognosis, you can combine it, of course, with cognitive tests. And of course, cognitive tests anyway needs to be done to identify people with microcognitive impairment. But in the dementia phase, I personally think that phosphatau 217 does the job very good on, on its own. But how are we going to maybe, maybe use these different tests? There are different tests also with different type of performance levels. And if you have a test that is have moderate performance, I still think it can be used for screening. And with screening here, I don't really mean screening of a general population, but maybe using primary care or patients with cognitive impairment. Because if such a test, you, you choose a cutoff that results in a high negative predictive value, meaning that if a test is normal, that the individual have at least 90% likelihood to not have Alzheimer's disease, then you can use, use the test to rule out Alzheimer's disease. You need to think what is but what is the reason is non-Alzheimer's disease reason for the patient's problems. Um, but, um, sorry, but, if, but if the test is positive and the test only have a moderate um, a positive predictive value, like 80% or 75%, you need with this type of test to do CSF or PET to confirm before starting a treatment like uh, disease-modifying therapy. But I think we are very close to have tests or some tests, maybe even today, perform on par, as we've seen here, with CSF. And maybe they could, in the future, be used even as confirmatory testing. We're not there yet, 
but we're not maybe too far away. So meaning that if a test is negative, it's not Alzheimer's disease, or it's positive, it's Alzheimer's disease, and maybe we could start treating directly. But we need more research on this particular use of a biomarker. But there is a third way that I think we can start using quicker in clinical practice, and that is to divide the population into three different groups. So we have, have those that are clearly negative, not Alzheimer's disease, clearly positive, that do have Alzheimer's disease and could start treatment without some other type of testing. But then we have a group in the middle that has a gray zone with intermediate results that need to go on with CSF or PET before more advanced treatments. So this, I think, is the way that at least we in our clinic in, in, in Malmö will start using these blood-based biomarkers. So the conclusion here is um, that, um, yeah, many of you have seen the Alzheimer's Association International Working Group's uh, recommendations, uh, which were very positive for blood-based biomarkers, um, but still do not think that they can be used as standalone biomarkers. So more recommending, especially those individuals with these gray zone values, to definitely undergo confirmatory testing with CSF and PET. As you have heard, <laughs> I'm a very strong believer in phosphatase 2 and 7, that that will actually revolutionize how we diagnose Alzheimer's disease, but we should start in memory clinics. I think we should still wait a few years before maybe wide, widespread use in primary care, but I'm convinced we will, bear, we will be there sooner rather than later. But we still need some research, especially on this, on comorbidities, how these affect these biomarkers. More for those patients with more, yeah, more severe comorbidities, I think this would be an important issue. Well, we've got really great questions coming in. Okay. Keep, them, keep them coming in. So one really important question that hasn't come up. These biomarkers run a spectrum from low to high. So how is a cut point going to be determined? And what do you think the, the regulatory evidentiary standard will be for the cut point? Hmm. Now, true, good, good question. I think we can learn a lot on how it's been done now for CSF biomarkers. Um, so, yeah, with a very high-performing assay, I still think we can have, hopefully, one cut point, you know? uh, And of course, it needs to be established in, in, in several different diverse cohorts. But then that cutoff needs, of course, to be validated in, in many other cohorts. Um, and, of course, we need to think about what is the standard truth. Um, so quite often we use amyloid PET and CSF a bit for 240, for example, for amyloid detection, which is definitely fine. At the same time, those measures are not perfect either. So it's important to remember that we can maybe never expect an accuracy above 90%, because those are not better than 90% themselves. But the good thing about plasma is that we have quite many cohorts also around where neuropathology has been done. So the samples have been collected in life, and we can compare it to actually AD neuropathology. And there are more and more studies coming there, and also in those courts, we can see that these cutoffs actually hold up. But I think that there will also be, and FDA recently approved now the, the Lumipulse assay with, in a way, two different cutoffs. So there is uh, low, normal, there is high, very high, you know, um, or if actually it's the other way around. Low is abnormal for CSF beta 4240, very high is, is, is normal, and then we have also this gray zone that's likely normal. And I think that will also be established for, for many of these blood tests, or at least I hope so, because life is not black and white. It is a high level, means that it's, yeah, for phosphatase, but it's very likely to balsam disease, low, not. But we still have this gray zone, which I think we should not ignore, and that's important. Great. Thank you for that. 
So here's an interesting question. PTAU is classified in ATNST. However, it's a very it's it's very well correlated with amyloid plaques, maybe better than with tau tangle pathology. So is it really A? Yeah, it almost gets into a philosophical debate now. <laughs> it's uh, of course it's tau that we are measuring now, um, but especially two three one phosphatau two three one is definitely more associated with amyloid plaque pathology. Um, 217, I would say, is associated with both to, to a similar degree. Uh, so it's, in a way, maybe a fantastic mark, you know, actually re reflecting both uh, amyloid plaques and tau tangles in the brain. I think that we sometimes oversimplify a bit because phosphotau is phosphotau. It's not amyloid plaques, it's not tau tangles, it's a soluble form of phosphotau in the brain. And when looking into it, if we're using immunostate chemistry, you see quite a lot of changes in the brain, for example, when staining for phosphotau 2 and 7. You see them in granular vacuolar degeneration bodies and, and many different structures. Of course, these have probably induced by amyloid plaque pathology, but it's not maybe really the same as amyloid plaque pathology. At the same time, we know that A-beta pathology is definitely associated with hyperphosphorylation and secretion of tau. So it's very close to the amyloid pathology. And also the NICE studies with all the immunotherapies showing that phosphotau go down with treatment, again, reinforces the close connection between them. So yeah, I still think that men, yeah, so it, if, if we think about AT as amyloid plaques and tau tangles, I agree that it's, some of them are actually more reflecting the A than the T. Um, but maybe we should get a little bit away from that simplistic thinking as well, because maybe we make it harder for ourselves than it is. Thank you. So a common clinical problem is distinguishing dementia with Lewy bodies from Alzheimer's, and they sometimes have overlapping pathology. Yeah. Do the biomarkers help us? So I think that the blood-based biomarkers, if we now are with them, we, we can only use them for detecting if a patient with clinical phenotype of, of dementia with blue bodies, if they also have AD pathology, you know, because phosphatau 217, for example, works well in that setting to identify those that also have, have amyloid and tau pathology besides the Lewy body disease. Um, if we want to detect the Lewy body disease, Instead, it's the seeding aggregation assays that we need to use uh, for alpha-synuclein. And those work extremely well in, in cerebrospinal fluid. Uh, they work quite well in skin. I'm still a bit hesitant if they really work in blood. But I think if anyone do research on that, please continue. It's such an important thing. Because um, we have some, some preliminary data from, from our group showing that patients or even cognitively normal individuals that have both fluid body disease and amyloid tau, they fare much worse and, 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 and deteriorate much faster. So, and it's also, I guess, important for clinical trials, of course, that quite some patients maybe do not respond so well to treatment might because they have a lot of Lewy body pathology beyond amyloid and tau pathology in the brain. So yeah, please continue with research on, on blood uh, measures for, for, for alpha-synuclein. Yeah. Thanks. So someone here is very sophisticated in tau, and they want to talk, want you to talk about tau two thirty one, p tau two thirty one. Yes. And would you use it? Would you use it in combination with p tau two seventeen? Where do you see the role of p tau two thirty one hmm. coming in? Since uh, since we already have two p taus. Exactly. So for for clinical practice, where we still should only use these these markers, I think for for people that have, have symptoms and not for screening of cognitively normal individuals, I don't personally see that two three one adds anything beyond two one seven. But 
for preclinical trials, if we want to find a beta pathology very early on, I still think that 231 might have an advantage. It seems to be slightly earlier, even though the data is a bit different depending on which assays are abused, if it's mass spectrometry and immunoassays. But I still propose situations when you want to detect very early preclinical AD. I think it could have a role. Good. Thank you for that. I'm just looking for the for the best questions here. Yeah, yeah. Um, the prevalence of AD pathology increases in a general population with age. Do you think we'll be able to use the blood-based biomarkers in individuals 80, 80 plus, 85 plus? Hmm. Do they become? Are they still useful in these very advanced stages? Yeah. No, no that, that's that, that's of course a very good question. Um, so of course those markers reflecting mainly amyloid pathology, yeah, the specificity go down. And that's the same with amyloid PET, of course, and, and CCFA beta 4240. I guess meaning that if the markers are normal, we know it's not Alzheimer's disease, but if they're positive, we're still unsure if it's AD pathology causing the symptomatology or something else. Um, but I'm very hopeful now with a quite rapid development we see of other tau markers that are more associated with tau tangle pathology like MTBR tau243, for example, that seems to be a later marker. So if you still you have a symptomatic patient with MCI or, or dementia, where the more early, more amyloid-related markers are increased, but also, let's say, MTBR tau are increased, then I think you could be quite confident that this individual does have quite some widespread tau tangle pathology, and it's likely that causing the symptomatology. And this is moving so fast, in CSF, they are already there. And in plasma, I think in one, two years, they will actually be available. So that, that is yeah, how, how I see it. Okay. So here's an interesting question. Inflammation is one of the hottest areas hmm. for drug development, one of the biggest in the Alzheimer's disease pipeline. How yep. close are we to some meaningful biomarkers, hmm. plasma biomarkers, for inflammation? Exactly. Yeah, so I guess it depends on how we, we think about GFAP, but GFAP is still a marker of, of reactive astrocytes, at least what, how, how we see it today. So that one works very well. The problem, I guess, um, with more other markers is that they're not specific for, for what's happening in the brain. No? So many of these markers we measure in CSF that seem to be reflecting different types of microglial activation and so on. They, of course, also to a large degree um, uh, expressed by macrophages around in the body. So if we measure things like, like TREM2, for example, in blood, it does maybe not really reflect what happens in the brain. And therefore, the correlation, if you measure it in blood and CSF, is almost non-existing. And a lot of other markers, like where kill 40 is the same problem. It's expressed for many different parts of the brain, so there's really no correlation. So this makes it tricky uh, still to find specific markers to measure in blood that reflects important changes in neuroinflammation in the brain. Their CSF, I think, will still be very important for that type of trials um, where manipulating, for example, microglial reactions and so on, and to measure that. So CSF will still be important for, for definitely in, in many trials, especially in this area. And do you see that CSF being replaced by a plasma marker at some point, or the, the physical characteristics are such that that will never happen? I wouldn't say never, because to be honest, if, if someone asked me like seven years ago, would we have like a phosphotau marker in blood for Alzheimer's disease, I would say, no, you're kidding. No? So one should be very careful. It's, uh, we have been, luckily, uh, luckily we've shown that we were wrong. <laughs> so, so hopefully we're wrong here as well. Hopefully someone will discover an interesting microglial marker that can be measured in, in blood. So here's a question about P-tau and aging. Mm -hmm. 
does P-tau go up with normal aging? So we should be aware of that. And then yeah. there's a syndrome of PART, the primary mm -hmm. age-related tauopathy. Yeah. Does P-tau go up with PART? Yeah, good, good questions, both of them. Um, so uh, the studies we have done, and also seen in Mayo Clinic and so on, is that phosphatau increases with age, but if you stratify it on, on amyloid, presence of amyloid pathology, those that are amyloid negative, it does not increase. So it increases with age because amyloid, presence or prevalence of amyloid in the population is increasing. So it's not becoming less specific with age. And that's a good thing, of course. Um, and in part, um, of course, we need to only look into studies where plasma has been collected before death and then look into to what's looking in the brain. And there have been a few such studies. Uh, we have, for example, done one um, with Julie Schneider on ROSMAP very recently. It's not yet published. Um, and we looked into in individuals with the same level, actually, of tau, but those without amyloid and those with amyloid, so those with part or very early Alzheimer's disease. And what we could see, the conclusion was that it was really the amyloid, again, actually, that was making the difference in phosphatau to 217. So if you have some tau tangles, very limited in, in, in the immediate temporal lobe, that does not affect the markers that much, at least. There might be some subtle changes, but not much. But if you have the same level then of, of tau, uh, like Brock 3-4, but with amyloid, it's clearly increased. So still, it's, to me, it seems specific for, for what we, how we define AD pathology today. Uh, yeah, you need amyloid and tau for it to increase, at least substantially. Okay, thank you. So, great. Thank you for the, thank all you. the answers. Thank you. And really thank you for all the job. questions. Uh, it's my pleasure also to share some of our insights with you. Uh, so, I will discuss with you uh, how and when we will integrate the biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease. So, biomarkers across the clinical continuum, we've discussed where we can use them, but we can use them at every stage of the pathology or and the pathway from the start of the disease until the end of it. So, as a risk, susceptibility biomarker, diagnostic biomarkers, prognostic biomarkers, also predictive biomarkers, I will explain in a minute what the difference is, monitoring biomarkers and safety biomarkers. So there are different contexts of use, and here are the definitions of all those different contexts of use. Or no, here are the names, but the definitions will follow now. So the upper two, risk and sus risk susceptibility biomarkers and diagnosis, they are often used and useful for clinical practice, but also in the selections of patients who will be eligible in clinical trials. Uh, as well as uh, the later on, hopefully, in clinical practice, if we can start treatment. So the monitoring biomarkers, that's um, for monitoring the, the patient's state and status, uh, but also uh, evaluate the effect of an intervention. The pharmacodynamic and response biomarkers, uh, that's a definition, a context of use, uh, that is tightly related to a, uh, a treatment and and also tightly related to the drug of use. There are predictive biomarkers, so predictive whether a drug will use, and that's the main difference with a prognostic biomarker, because a prognostic biomarker uh, is predictive uh, for a an, an, uh, clinical event. So that's different uh, from a therapeutic event. And the safety biomarkers, they measure uh, whether there is an, an unwanted effect of a drug. 
And for Alzheimer's disease, we are very familiar with the ATN framework, and it has been very useful also for research. Uh, but there are, um, when the studies have been performed, uh, there are also several points of discussions that have been raised. So for example, the eight categories of the ATN framework, that they are too many for use in clinical practice, not so practical. Uh, there are other um, considerations like the eight categories are too few uh, because they do not capture the heterogeneity among individuals and maybe they are not enough because they don't reflect all the other pathologies. We discussed already today the alpha synuclein pathology with TDP for, uh, pathology, so they are not taken into account and of course neuroinflammation. Uh, it also appears that different biomarker modalities, especially the fluid biomarkers against the MRI imaging biomarkers, uh, they may show different results and, uh, and also the cutoffs may be different uh, in the categorization of individuals. And a special note to Tau, because Tau is our um, favorite topic. Uh, so the Tau top, um, positivity on the fluid biomarkers um, probably reflects a different aspect of the pathology and gives it because it gives different results than the Tau when measured on PET. And I'll allude on that a little bit further here. So here's a study of the BioFinder cohort, uh, where they uh, uh, categorize patients, whether they are amyloid uh, positive or CSF tau, uh, P-tau-217 positive or tau-PET positive. And it appears that the category of the individuals who are P-tau positive, but not tau-PET positive, uh, that there's a different prognostic potential. So it showed that this group has, uh, has a, um, this positivity predicts the future accumulation of tau tangles as measured by tau pet. Whereas if the, also the tau pet is positive, that's predictive for neurodegeneration and cognitive out decline over time. So there are different predictions that can be made depending on the positivity of the, of the different tau modalities. So, and in general, CSF-P-tau becomes abnormal before tau-PET. Uh, but nevertheless, this intermediate group of CSF or blood P-tau positive individuals, it's an interesting group and might be the best group to treat in the early stage because there is uh, still um, yeah, not so much damage and there's something to interfere. Blood papers biomarks can also be used for as screening tools, um, which has been done, for example, in a, a HEAD study, um, in which they evaluate nicanemab in participants with preclinical AD, and they compared the different uh, plasma biomarkers uh, at entry, and the best area on the curve was provided by 217, but it's not so much different uh, in the study uh, for the plasma a beta ratio. Uh, but looking into those data, the analysis and modeling show that uh, there will be improvement of the positive predictive value for uh, having a positive uh, uh, PET scan later on uh, by, by yeah, it's doubling it. So from 28%, 29% uh, to 61% uh, who will be PET confirmed uh, if we use the plasma as a pre-screen. 
So those are impressive numbers because that will avoid also the, the unnecessary screening and, 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 uh, and also reduce the cost. And it's very relevant that the biomarkers do reflect the, the pathology uh, of interest and, that you're, and the pathology that you're targeting with your treatments. So in the trailblazer als trial using Donalumab, they included elevated plasma PTAR217 in inclusion criteria. And as already alluded on by Oscar in the BioFinder study uh, published by Sebastian Palmquist, um, there is a good correlation between plasma uh, PTAR values, plasma PTAR217, and the tangle density score, but mostly or only in those who are uh, Alzheimer positive. So you need a uh, biomarker still to define whether someone is Alzheimer positive. But the positive news and good news is that there is a good relation with, uh, with the Alzheimer pathology. Now uh, again, uh, a comparison of the different plasma biomarkers uh, in this particular study showed uh, that the plasma PTAR217 really outperformed the other biomarkers to define whether someone is specifically has specifically Alzheimer's disease compared to non-Alzheimer's dementia, so other dementias. So it's a very specific biomarker for Alzheimer's disease. <coughs> We can also use the biomarkers as pharmacodynamic biomarkers, so treatment response biomarkers. It, this has been shown in the Donanumab trial again. And um, so the plasma PETA217 values, they reduce by 23%. So this is a phase two trial. So targeting amyloid, uh, the three pyroglutamate amyloid, leads to downstream effects on the PETA levels, but not only on PETA also on GFAP. Uh, so this really shows that the biomarkers and a, and a combination of different biomarkers will help us to understand what's happening biologically after treatment. And hopefully these will end up to be surrogate biomarkers uh, to show that there is a clinical effect so that we can use those biomarkers to monitor early effects and maybe reduce the treatment time. So there are significant reductions in the plasma biomarkers, both PETA217, but also GFAB. And similar observations have been made in the Clarity AD trial uh, using Lecanemab. Uh, so the plasma uh, A-beta ratio increased uh, during the treatment period uh, in those who are on the treatment, so it's the red line. Uh, the PTAR levels, they decreased, and the GFAP levels again decreased, so again showing downstream effects. And the NFL levels, they were a bit less sensitive. Um, the, the, I, I don't think the results are so conclusive for uh, NFL. So looking ahead, uh, can we use the blood-based biomarkers into a clinical trial design? I think we can at uh, several levels. So both at screening and inclusion, at uh, pre-screening for the at-risk populations, uh, as inclusion criterion, um, but in combination with confirmatory testing, 
but also for enrichment and stratification. So as we observed for the P tau 217 values, the, the ones uh, that are, don't have too high levels, but uh, still elevated, uh, probably they are an interesting population to study within a trial because they are more likely to, to uh, have pro uh, progression. So the plasma biomarkers you see everywhere <laughs> that they are cost effective and very practical. But we can also use them as uh, treatment outcomes for target engagement. Uh, if amyloid is targeted, you can use amyloids. But if amyloid is targeted, we learn nowadays also we can use PTAU to measure uh, whether there is effect on the Alzheimer pathology. And we can also use them as clinical trial endpoints to monitor the downstream effects on the downstream biology. And where can we use them in clinical practice? Uh, probably uh, for those different contexts of use, we can also use them in different contexts in, our, in the, yeah, the patient journey. So the risk susceptibility and diagnostic biomarks can be used uh, hopefully in a couple of years in primary care, <coughs> and <coughs> but also in the specialty clinics. Uh, for monitoring and, uh, and all the treatment-related biomarkers, uh, I think the time now and the current state of, of how the treatments should be evaluated, that, uh, there we should apply them in the specialty clinics. And when will we uh, uh, implement them? Um, usually I'm very optimistic and say that it's uh, useful to... Yeah, we can do it in one year or one month. Um, I, I think we can in one month. Actually, we will be doing it in one month. But that's in a research context. And if people ask whether we can use them uh, widespread, uh, I do think we need a little bit more time to study all kinds of influencing factors, as uh, Oscar mentioned. Uh, but it, the time is now. So three to five years. And uh, for use in primary care uh, settings, um, maybe we, we need to refine also and, and make criteria for use in the primary care settings. Uh, but I do think that we can use them within five or 10 years. So again, as um, Oscar also alluded on, how can we use them in the, in the primary care setting? Uh, probably it's a good way to use the blood-based biomarkers to filter out those who have a low probability uh, for having Alzheimer's disease. And those who have a medium probability, um, we can measure them. At, or Of course, we can measure whenever we want. Uh, but the information uh, that we obtain at the primary care facilities will direct towards a referral to specialty clinics. And those who have a high probability of having Alzheimer's disease, um, maybe if you have a widespread treatment that's available and accessible to everyone and it's working also um, yeah, in everyone, uh, then uh, we can immediately start treatments. But I do think that uh, likely that will, for the next coming years, be in specialty clinics. And here is a real-world study that, uh, of uh, Sarto et al. And they uh, performed such a study into uh, and, and modeling the different uh, cutoffs. So they had a low level of plasma p-tau for those who have a low probability um, of, and they don't need further testing. There's the intermediate zone for plasma p-tau 181. 
uh, with, with two, yeah, an intermediate zone of cutoffs, uh, where the result is is not so uh, straightforward and who needs additional testing. And if you use a very high cutoff for plasma PETA 181 in this study, they observe that 30% have a high probability of being amyloid beta positive, which they confirmed. So you don't need uh, further biomarker testing. So this is a way we, we could um, yeah, apply those different plasma, or in this case plasma PETA 181, but we can also apply different biomarkers uh, to make this prediction even more accurate. So the plasma PETA 181 in this study at least predicted the probability with a high accuracy. So this is a summarizing slide um, about the roles of implementing blood-based biomarkers in clinical practice. So what to use? First and for all, plasma PETA um, 217. Um, but probably in combination with amyloid beta, because it's too early to uh, already dismiss plasma A beta. And after all, it's Alzheimer's disease. We think amyloid is important. Uh, so I'm a bit reluctant to send amyloid beta home already. Uh, Neurofilament light, because that will help you also uh, for the differential diagnosis, for example, in discriminating frontotemporal dementia patient, but also due to its A-specificity, but specificity for axonal damage, we can use neurofilament light to get an indication that at least something is wrong. So if it's elevated, something is wrong, and uh, that needs further action, if, it's, uh, if there are treatment options, of course. And GFAP is a very interesting biomarker. It's a reflection of astrocyte reactivity. Uh, it has a good prognostic potential, also in the early stages in the subjective cognitive decline uh, patients, so uh, cognitively unimpaired patients. So I do think it's a very interesting biomarker, and it will also complete our um, holistic vision on the, on the different biologies that are involved in Alzheimer's disease. So when to use? First of all, uh, in individuals with cognitive impairments, so no population screenings, our tests are not good enough for that. Um, those who are suspected for having Alzheimer's disease at the initial diagnostic workup, and those who are, have a contraindication or aversion to lumbar puncture. Where to use? Well, primary care, but that's the, uh, the horizon. Um, but also in primary and specialty care together to aid the diagnosis and in clinical trials. And the appropriate use criteria by the Alzheimer Association indicated that the use in clinical trials is probably the first um, the context of use that uh, the blood-based biomarkers will be implemented. And we've seen it already in the Donalumab trial. And, uh, but there are still... Um, we do think that it's necessary to do confirmatory, test, confirmatory testing. And how to use, again, not in isolation, combine it with cognitive performance. But hopefully there will be digital tests that can replace the, uh, the pen and paper uh, tests and that will help us also in a first screening and reduce the burden on the healthcare system. And the CSF and PET imaging, they are still required for confirmatory testing. Thank you, Charlotte. So we've got a lot of questions. Coming. Oh, yay. Uh -oh. <laughs> One is, uh, 
we used to hear about something called ApoE4 as a blood test. Yes. Um, yeah. We haven't heard about it at all today. So where where does ApoE4 set in this approach to blood-based biomarkers? So ApoE is an important risk factor for uh, for getting Alzheimer's disease and also at an earlier age. Uh, the ApoE blood tests, in fact, they are um, yeah, defining which genotype you have. Uh, I do think that it's an interesting biomarker also to combine. Um, and it's a risk factor, uh, but age is also a risk factor. And we also look, we correct also for age and we, correct, we can also correct for ApoE. However, in our uh, calculations of the different cutoffs and uh, prediction modeling, and Inga Verberg will give a presentation about that on Friday, uh, we don't see a strong effect of APOE on the, on the different cutoffs and, uh, and the, yeah, the specificities and sensitivities. Uh, so it is an interesting biomarker. Uh, I also observed that uh, Roche uh, included the PTAU together with the APOE test. Um, so, yeah, we need to await the results, uh, but it gives you a bit weird feeling also because it's genetic testing. And uh, I would be very reluctant also uh, to perform genetic testing in the primary care setting. I'm quite against that also um, because you need to disclose and also the results uh, to the families. So. Yeah, one of my friends has uh, ApoE44, and she also has Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so we, we know that their children will also have at least one of those alleles. You can't just throw it out uh, to a patient and tell them, You're, yeah, you have ApoE44, and that affects also their families. So you need consultation with that. So I'm quite against using that in a primary care setting. Okay, thank you. There's a lot of questions about uh, the use of blood-based biomarkers in the therapeutic setting, and you showed a, a, a few of these responses. The questions, and I'll just sort of lump them together, once a patient is amyloid negative after monoclonal therapy, are blood-based biomarkers for A-beta still relevant? And do you see PTAU-217 or maybe 181 being able to be used to follow treatment and decide when a patient could either stop or maybe reinitiate treatment. Um, yeah, I, um, it, it might be, but so far in the trials, the monitoring has not been done on a very regular or frequent time point. So many trials measure the biomarkers after one year and or, or as at the end point. And I think it's very important uh, to monitor also at earlier time points, at three months, six months, and, and so on. Because maybe similar as we observed for the amyloid reduction uh, on PETs, uh, we must we um, may have to see a similar reduction and similar slope also for the blood-based biomarkers to in order to be predictive. Um, um, so may, maybe we need to see this reduction uh, up to a certain level, but also that it's um, reduced already within three or six months, uh, similar as for amyloid PET reduction is re relevant. So this is also a call to collaborate more and, and, and sample more frequently uh, because that's the only way how we will be able to define whether um, in retrospect 
with effective drugs, uh, whether the biomarkers have the potential to act as a surrogate biomarker for treatment effects. There's a person here, actually several questions about uh, comorbidities, and uh, we heard a little bit about this from Oscar, uh, but specifically asking about uh, BMI and ethnicity in the non-PTAL biomarkers. Yes. Um, so f there are similar effects, uh, for example, of BMI on uh, neurofilament light. Uh, expected also to uh, have an effect on uh, GVP. Uh, so those comorbidities, they may have an effect, but uh, we should not only look in large cohorts and see if there is any significant difference. It's also important to make the next step to see if its effects are uh, concordance, discordance of the diagnosis, and also whether it would affect the cutoff values, because that's relevant when we come to the clinics. Uh, we observed that stroke, uh, so in the M7 menstrual cohorts, we also did such uh, confounder analysis, and we observed that especially stroke, uh, or only stroke, had an effect on the, um, the concordance of the diagnosis for based on amyloid uh, plasma ratios. Uh, but, but, yeah, so... Uh, but on plasma pita, we did not find an effect on the diagnostic uh, sensitivity uh, within a certain range. So uh, I think we have to look a little bit further, and uh, but we there is no need to set the bar that high and to to make us so worried about it. This is normal clinical chemistry practice that there are some variations and uncertainties, and I do think we can live with that. Okay, um, and the. Um, uh, uh, sort of a basic biology question was, we've talked about PTAL1A1, we've talked about uh, 217, we've talked about 231. So why are they different? Why are we getting different information from the different epitopes? I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it, it could be that it's really uh, different underlying biology, but, but the, the tau phosphorylation is not static. The, it's a dynamic process also. Um, so it could be. But I also think that it's quite related to the affinities of the antibodies and um, different assay performances. Um, so uh, when... Uh, there was one study of Lee Steisen in Nesset Neurology uh, where she compared the MSD assays for PITA-181 and 217 uh, in exactly the same settings and exactly the same incubation conditions, and uh, but only the, the primary antibody was uh, either 217 or 181. And th there was really a minor difference, and uh, sometimes there was no difference at all between the two. So I don't think it's it's really a, a, uh, yeah, a strong biological difference. But that's my personal opinion. Okay. Yeah. All right. Maybe we'll take that to the yeah. to the <laughs> panel uh, too. Uh, one question asked um, uh, about uh, how will two seventeen help PCPs in triaging patients to specialist centers? AD only accounts for 50% of dementia patients, and we might want to re refer patients who have DLB or FTD to specialists. So how is 217 really going to help us? 
Uh, yeah, so I don't think we should use 217 on its own for the clinical diagnosis. We can use it to identify those who are amyloid positive. So if it's positive, you're amyloid positive. But if it's negative, there are still open questions and other uh, options like having FTD. It's not so prevalent, but it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the major dementias. Uh, for DLB, the, um, yeah, the puzzle is a bit more complicated because it's all often uh, in, in about 50% amyloid co-pathology. But if you want to target amyloid uh, pathology within DLB patients, we can, can use those biomarkers as well. But there is a strong search for other biomarkers for DLB and um, by proteomics analysis, we uh, identified a, a panel in CSF that was highly discriminative for DLB uh, versus control and, and also good discrimination for uh, DLB versus AD. Um, and we identified also an interesting biomarker, DDC, that uh, yeah, was among this panel and was really one of the strongest drivers of the differences. Uh, so I do think that will complement our toolbox uh, because the officer nuclein seeding assay, it's interesting, but it gives a yes or no answer. Um, and it's better, or, or I do think that it's useful also uh, to have an, um, yeah, the, an, a biomarker of which you can have a linear relation with and that you can observe a small reduction, for example, due to a treatment and small variations. Uh, so uh, there is time for, to work a little bit more on DLB. Okay, okay. Um, uh, and there was a question here about, um, uh, you showed the reduction in 217 with denanumab therapy. There's a question about the, the assay performance. How much of that reduction could be attributed to assay variability as opposed to drug-induced reduction? Well, the reduction was over 20%. Uh, if an assay variability would be over 20%, we would not use it. So usually the assay variability uh, within duplicates, within one assay, it's below 5%. And ideally, uh, from batch to batch or day to day, it's uh, below 10% or maybe 15%, but not 20 So at least uh, there is a part of it that's uh, not due to variability. But uh, in such uh, trials, it's analyzed in one batch. Uh, so you don't have those batch differences. You only have to do with uh, the duplicate variations, which is usually lower than 5%. So I'm very confident that this is a real result. Okay. All right. So why don't you join us here? Yep. We Thank will you. start the panel yep. discussion. Thank you very much. So here's a question. We have 217. We have 181. We have 231. Are there a bunch more to come? You know, is this, is this just the beginning? Are there many epitopes that are likely to be informative about Alzheimer's disease? I, I definitely think so. I've, yeah, I, I still think that 217 does a great job now of identifying, especially those with amyloid positive. But as we discussed a little bit before, we maybe don't have that good markers yet for, for tau tangle load in the brain, in, in, to measure in blood, I mean. Uh, and there are now emerging uh, evidence that Tau phosphorylated 205 now. It's similar epitope as 88 antibody binds, 202, 205. Seems to be more related to tau tangle pathology. And I know that 
that can be measured in, in blood nowadays. Um, and it's, it will be very interesting to see those in big cohorts. But as we've also discussed, you now these more microtubular binding domain fragments of tau that also seems to be much more associated with tau tangle pathology. So I think there will be. Hopefully, we'll maybe have a more crude ATAN um, uh, definition also in, in, in blood in, in the near future. Um, but let's see. I think for still for clinical practice, I think 217 on its own will be a great marker. Okay, right. Charlotte, any thoughts about additional epitopes? <clears throat> yes, we can expect them uh, to arise also, uh, because by mass spectrometry analysis, um, yeah, you, you can analyze several epitopes, and there are interesting findings, as Oscar said, uh, for the PETA-205, uh, the microtubulin binding domain. Uh, so, yeah, there, there is more to come. We're not done yet. Leanna, any thought about that? I would agree with them. Okay, great. So one question is, what about T-tau? We haven't really heard very much about, we've heard a lot about P-tau, but not, a, not very much about total tau uh, in, in, the, in the symposium. So wh wh where is that? Charlotte, maybe we'll start, start with you. <coughs> now, T-tau uh, doesn't seem to be very specific for Alzheimer's disease. So there are other diseases where it's also elevated, and it may, in plasma, even not be very specific for, for brain processes. So there is probably some interferences. And there is also some pre-analytical effects. And that might explain the whole story as well. Uh, so in, um, in a systematic study where we analyzed um, and, and evaluated the effects of pre-analytical variations, like uh, putting samples on a bench for a while before you centrifuge or out of the centrifugation, or uh, repeated freezing thawings. Uh, we did that for a lot of amyloid biomarkers, P-tau, GVP, NFL, um, and also on uh, total tau. And it appeared that total tau was very sensitive uh, for leaving the sample on the bench uh, up to a couple, a couple of hours. And um, so at room temperature, it went down, but uh, if you put the sample on ice, it, it went up extremely. So it can, yeah, it went in all kinds of directions. Uh, so I do think that yeah, either it's a function of the assay, because I can't imagine that uh, yeah, the total tau is so sensitive, yet the p tau is not that sensitive. But it's something yeah, we need to understand better. But it, it could be an explanation why the results are so, so noisy for total tau. Oscar, any thoughts about that? I know you've worked with this a little bit. Yeah, exactly. I, I guess the, the, the word total tau is a bit problematic because <laughs> it, it's not you you measure different fragments and depending on which antibodies is different fragments to measure and it's just about the antibodies not specific for phosphorylation site where you call it total tau um, so there are many 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 different total taus we should remember um, and with mass spectrometry of course you can measure a lot of these different fragments and i guess we have not seen such a um, interesting um, results with that compared to the, the phosphatau epitopes. Yeah. But if you want to do some tau staging of, of your individual, it might actually be interesting. So many of these phosphatau seems to become abnormal quite early in the disease, but this more total level of this fragment of, of tau, now I'm not talking about the microtubular domain tau, might change a bit later. So maybe it would be interesting in such an approach where you take one sample, you see which markers have changed in that particular individual, and then you see, okay, this one is quite early in the tau disease staging, but this one has more abnormal different tau variants and it's later. There, I think total tau as a late marker could be an interesting uh, marker, actually. 
And Leanna, one of our audience members is surprised that our panel here doesn't want to do more screening of preclinical patients. So why is that? What, what, what's the reluctance to do this testing in someone who is asymptomatic? Lack of effective treatments. I'm, I don't think my mic works. Lack of effective treatments mm -hmm. in the pre-symptomatic stages. For now, sulanezumab didn't seem to change the course in A4. We will be looking at ahead in other studies like that to see whether disease-modifying therapies would be meaningful to implement in the preclinical stages. Once we have the evidence, I will be the first to test my pre-symptomatic individuals, patients with cognitive, cognitively normal performance. But at this point in time, we don't have much to offer therapeutically. So this would be still a research testing. Could you say... Um this patient has abnormal biomarkers, they're asymptomatic, but I'm going to follow them very carefully because I now have a therapy for a minimally affected patient. Yeah, of course. That, that is the, yeah, but in routine clinical practice, you would, you would identify these, such individuals in research. You would not provide, I would not provide feedback to cognitively normal individuals, whether their biomarkers are abnormal or whether they're amyloid positive yet. But of course, in, as you, they are followed in observational studies, they have the best chance to actually get as quickly on therapy as, you know, right. more than anyone else because they have serial testing and you could see the decline. So absolutely, yeah. Participation in research is, is how to get um, earliest um, exposure to therapies for cognitively normal individuals. And Oscar, would you agree with that? Is, is preclinical testing only for research? Wouldn't you want to dis discover this in an asymptomatic individual? Uh, no, I must say, I, I couldn't have said it better. I fully agree <laughs> with what you said. No, I, I, think, I think we should not. It's uh, still... Still, we shouldn't underestimate the information. You know, but you know that you have AD pathology, but there's really no approved drugs, and and still the lifestyle changes, as you, you mentioned, Leona, you should do with them anyway. You know, for they are protective for so many other diseases. So, um, I'm still reluctant to, to do that, um, uh, like a screening of cognitively normal people with outside a research setting. Okay, Charlotte, are you? <clears throat> Now, I think uh, there is a lot to be discovered first, uh, because we know that there is a preclinical phase of uh, maybe 20 years. I, I don't think we can detect increases 20 years, but maybe 15 or 7 years before we see the clinical symptoms on average. Um, so once you detect that there is amyloid positivity, um, you, you, uh, in an asymptomatic, uh, asymptomatic person, uh, you can't, yeah, again, not just send them home with that message if you have no treatment, but also if you cannot make a better prediction of uh, when the disease will start. So, and will you then treat them for those seven or ten years uh, already? Is that useful? We don't know yet. And we don't know yet uh, how these biomarkers perform and, and how predictive they are. Um, uh, and probably they are less predictive because that's what uh, we've observed also for the CSF biomarkers. So the earlier you get, the, the noisier the prediction is. So I think we're not there yet. Okay, all right. So now this is for each of you. You each get three biomarkers. This is what one of the audience suggested. So, and. I think we should we'll be a little bit more specific. You get three biomarkers for early detection. 
Okay. So what three, Charlotte, would you choose of the, all the repertoire we've talked about today, what three biomarkers would you choose for early detection? Uh, so for early detection of amyloid pathology, is that the question uh, for starting Well, that's, that's right. Or, you've got a, you've got yeah, a patient who has I, symptoms, and now you're trying yeah. to understand what disease they have. Yeah, so to understand the symptoms of a patient who comes to the clinic, I would go for 217, but besides that, NFL and GFAP. So NFL, because it gives some additional information, as I said, on uh, FTD, for example, and GFAP because it has good prognostic um, information. It was symptom symptomatic yeah, patients? Yeah, this, um, this is sympt an early symptomatic an patient. An early symptomatic patient, yeah. okay. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, 217, absolutely, and a neurofilament makes a lot of sense, of course, um, to detect other types of neurodegenerative disorders when, when Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but the third marker, it, is it should it be fluid or could it be imaging? <laughs> fluid. <laughs> this is a symposium on blood-based medicine. Ah, okay. So it has oh, to be blood. Now I'm going to almost propose how pet imaging for prognosis. Um, yeah, I think in the future I, I would go with one of these, but I'm not yet there, but the, the tau tangle markers like phosphor tau 205 or MTBR uh, tau. Uh, that would be my uh, choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm an imager, and I'm going to cheat a little bit. My first biomarker would be MRI <laughs> to take a look at the brain, and then PTAU217 for certain, and indeterminate patients would need to get an amyloid PET. These would be my three. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right, so you're mixing and imaging. I am mixing. Well, why not A-beta measures? I mean, I'm surprised that we didn't hear you defending A-beta 42 to 40 ratios more. I, mean, I guess it's this biological problem now, but it's only reduced by, by 10% in, in, in patients with Alzheimer's disease versus those without Alzheimer's disease. So they are so close to each other, and the, the assays need to be, have such high performance over time. So there is a risk of, of misclassification. And also, I guess, when you use really good assays, like the mass spectrometer assays, it only adds a little bit to, to 217, and it's really minor in symptomatic populations. But if you move into preclinical, I think it can have a role. Okay. What's the best blood-based biomarker for prediction of progression? So now I want to know whether my patient is going to get worse, and, and are they going to get worse soon? How, how do I figure that out? And that's Charlie, a very good question. Um, so I'm a big fan of GVP, but I also see that there is good information in Plasma Pita 217. Uh, but in the later stages, NFL also adds uh, prognostic information. So I do think that we don't know yet what's the best. Well, maybe it's not about the winners. Uh, we can measure them all. That's the beauty also of the fluid biomarkers. Uh, we can measure several of them. It will only increase the cost, but not the burden. Okay. Oscar, would you, is that yeah. how you see it? Yeah, exactly. Um, no, 217 is not only yes and no marker. It's actually the level. The higher the level, the, the, the worse the prognosis. So 217 definitely, and, and I agree with, with neurofilament as, as well. But I think also, now I'm a bit repetitive here, but this MTBR tau will also be important here. At least we see that in CSF. So hopefully it will be the same in blood. Okay. Leanna, thoughts about prognostic biomarkers? And I'll let you use imaging if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I think MTBR tau might be the most valuable alongside with high levels of PTAU, as you said. But yeah, tau imaging. 
is going to help us stage and predict uh, how aggressive disease progression might be. It looks like individuals with uh, higher levels of tau and more regional spread of tau progress faster. Uh, so there would be the value of that. Okay, right. So we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to ask uh, whether the ratios, there's a question here about the ratios, like T-tau to P-tau, for example, as a way of getting better, more stable, less variable measures? Uh, I, I don't think so. Uh, that we can solve it because the T-tau the measures, they were so unstable, as I just explained. Uh, but we can look into other ratios uh, and, and other combinations, so different P-tau isoforms, for example, or, or we can also make ratios of um, yeah, different biomarkers uh, to normalize uh, the, uh, the effects of circadian rhythms and pre-analytical effects and whatsoever. So we, we have to think out of the box and not just um, focus on the current biomarkers to do that. I, I tend to I agree with, with using immunoassays, as, as, as you say, immunoassays for these total tau measures are quite noisy. So if you use a ratio of two bit noisy variables, the noise amplifies. But, but with mass spectrometry assays, we actually measure these peptides at the same time, uh, especially at least with, with certain assays, like the WashU developed one. It seems like using these ratios actually increase the, the performance consistently. And uh, Shuin and Lisa had one paper, I think it will be published soon where we see that there also that the effect of comorbidities are drastically reduced. Because, for example, chronic kidney disease increases phosphatal 2 and 7, but also the total tau peptides, if you use the ratio, the effect of chronic kidney disease disappears. Mm -hmm. So for certain methods, but maybe it's only for certain mass spectrometry methods, I think these ratios are extremely mm -hmm. promising. Okay. But maybe we should use a chronic kidney disease marker for that, to correct for that. Maybe that's as good, mm -hmm. uh, as good, or, or uh, yeah, who knows? <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> Oh, we have a little bit more time than I than I thought. The oh, yeah. uh, one of the things we haven't heard about is proteomics, and uh, we hear a lot about it in general, but we haven't heard it on this panel. So, is is that an emerging technology yes. that we're going to see Definitely. more of? Yeah. Yeah, there are very promising results out of that. Uh, there are new technologies, and that uh, can also help you bring the proteomics findings uh, to the clinical practice or for using clinical trials. Um, yes, um, yeah, but that's a different subject. So we start with uh, CSF uh, because that's uh, closer to the brain pathology. And we have observed very interesting good uh, discriminations between AD controls, DLB controls, FTD controls, uh, and, um, and, F and DLB, and between AD and DLB and FTD. Uh, so I, I think it's a promising technology. We could validate also making custom panels and also uh, single biomarkers could, could be made relatively easily in contrast to our earlier uh, studies where it was difficult to translate mass spectrometry findings uh, to clinical useful assays. Now we have array-based proteomics that will help us in this process. Um, and, and that's being performed for CSF, and now we can take a further step towards blood um, and identify novel biomarkers, either by proteomics directly, or we can use the CSF by identified biomarkers and, and, as, um, and next make blood-based assays for these markers, uh, similar as what we've done for the PTAU and the amyloids and nerve-limit lights. So we can also follow that route in the pathway towards implementation. 
Lashker, proteomic touch. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. I think the technology has has developed tremendously in the last years. Because before, like 10, 20 years ago, it was a proteomic study and you, you read it and then another one and they were quite seldom reproducible. No? Um, but now it's very reproducible data with certain methods and both to find it for, for diagnostic purposes, but also really for understanding the disease processes, I think is extremely interesting and uh, will, will guide us a lot. Um, and both in observational studies, but of course also in trials. Yes. Degree. Yeah. Then have you seen interesting things about proteomics emerging? Uh, not yet. I think the data is coming. I wonder, though, about cost. Would that be a cost-effective way, a proteomic panel? Would it be uh, it, comparable it, to the blood test we have now? Uh, it's a different context of use or a different purpose. So the proteomics usually is a research method to identify novel uh, biomarkers. And then downstream, um, yeah, there are, should be assays that are... Uh, practical for clinical implementation and uh, usually you don't need all the thousands of proteins that you identify and the data analysis is also yeah we can streamline it in our pipelines but uh, it's easier to have just a handful of biomarkers but the proteomics analysis uh, or our proteomics analysis showed that we need a cluster of like nine or ten biomarkers only out of the thousands uh, to, uh, for an optimal discrimination so that will end up with a smaller panel. And that's how I see we can uh, use the proteomics for uh, translation into clinical tests. Uh, but in clinical trials, it's also very interesting to know uh, what, what mechanisms are affected. Yeah. And, and in that way, it's even more cost-effective than doing a couple of uh, single biomarker assays because for the same price, I'm Dutch, <laughs> uh, very cost-effective, you can uh, analyze uh, the whole panel of biomarkers in a proteomics analysis and then you have more answers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're coming to the end. There's a question that I did ask Liana, but I didn't get to ask uh, Charlotte and Oscar. What's the missing biomarker? Uh, for Leanna, it was the vascular factor. Is it what? What's what is it, Charlotte? For you, what's what's the next thing that we really need to understand Alzheimer's yeah. disease? Uh, so the copathology biomarkers, and especially for TDP forty three, we don't have a good biomarker yet. So I think that's uh, one that we need to go after. Okay. Oscar? Yeah, I agree with that. And also Lewy body, as we discussed before. But also really reliable, I think, um, markers of, of synaptic generation would be great. There are emerging ones like beta-synuclein and so on. But I think we need even more and, and better markers for, for synaptic generation that we can measure in blood. I'm just going to summarize uh, a few things here. So to allow for early diagnosis management, a timely and accurate diagnosis of AD based on underlying biology is imperative. So I think that's where we're trying to go. How can we help our patients most with the greatest precision? High-performing assays for plasma PTAL will revolutionize the diagnostic workup of patients in specialist clinics and in the longer-term primary care. So that's a trajectory we are on. Specialists now, primary care soon. Emerging blood-based biomarkers together with clinical assessments have the potential to determine the patient-level probability of having a neurodegenerative disease. I think the, the point there is that it's not just about biomarkers. It's also about what the patient looks like clinically and the integration of those two. So thank you all for coming. Thanks to a great panel. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. 
Thank you to the experts for their practical insights into the use of blood-based biomarkers in the diagnosis and treatment of AD. And thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access further activities on Alzheimer's disease on touchneurology.com. Thank you.